Should you be visiting with us? I want to just welcome you. We are walking through the book of 1 Samuel. I don't know who's keeping count, but it's the 10th Sunday in the series uh, so far. We're going to be in it for a good while. Um, I hope it's been edifying to you. Do want to ask you to pray with us for Thursday's preaching workshop. Um, I'm not the instructor at that. You all know that sometimes I'll leave town for a week and travel somewhere and be an instructor for the Charles Simeon Trust. But we're having an instructor come in for that, that the Charles Simeon Trust is sending to us. So just pray for those pastors. We're, we're hosting a one-day event, and our prayer is that if we have really a successful kind of attendance as well as an experience regionally, that in 2022 in the fall, we'll be able to host a full workshop like the ones that I traveled to go away to. And Christ Community uh, is in a great place to do that. We're in a church that loves God's word, and we're seeing an opportunity to invest in other churches and pastors around us and just walk alongside them with the same calling we share. And so it's pastors from different denominations, uh, not all Reformed or Presbyterian or anything like that, but it is saying, hey, listen, when we stand before God's people, we all have the same tool toolbox, you could say. We have the same weapon. We have to use whatever illustration you desire, but we're called to do the same thing. We're called to preach God's word and to show people Jesus. And we're, we're, we're called to expect and ask the Holy Spirit to apply the scriptures. And so pray for us that we would be effective and that it would be a fruitful Thursday. Other thing I want to say to you, part of it was because of some technology stuff, but I saw people kind of coming in we decided to hang over on the bulletin back there sort of the, the current concept of our potential project during 2022, which we're just in the investigation stages. So just as you walk out and you look over there by that uh, old that, that coffee bar area, you'll see an architectural rendering of a blowout of this side of the church and making it so that we can have 400 people worshiping in one room. It's just the concept we share with you at our vision night. And the task force, as well as the deacons and elders, are navigating that slowly. There will be congregational meetings in the future about that. We're not announcing anything right now. But over the last three weeks, we've just struggled to find seats for everyone. And we just thought it might be wise to have that up there. So whether it's a first-time visitor or a regular attendee, just a reminder to pray for something. Uh, because we don't want to be in the business of real estate expansion of any kind. We want God to do what he's doing. We want him to use his word. We want us to be... Evangelists and, evangelists and missionaries where he sent us, but it is increasingly apparent this building is in need of some help for us to be doing the things God's asked us to do here. So please be in prayer with us for that. First Samuel chapter 9, let me say a few things before we read together. Uh, today we get to meet Saul. Saul is the one whose name in Hebrew means asked for. So in chapter 8, we had the people ask for a king, and through Samuel the prophet, God warns and says, I'll give you a king, but you asking for a king to, be, to make you like the nations is a rejection of me. Samuel, I want you to anoint for them a king, and then the very next chapter, we meet a man whose head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He's beautiful and enormous, and his name means asked for. So that's where we're at in the story. So would you stand with me and let's meet the people's king that God is going to allow them to have. So please attend to God's word together. Verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorah, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkey. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah. 
but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about me. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city. And he's a man who is held in honor. And all that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Hey, here, look. I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? Answered, he is, behold, he's ahead of you, hurry. He's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you'll find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and they were entering the city. They saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I've seen my people because their cry has come up to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they've been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan from the humblest of all the clans of the tribes of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into the hall and gave them a place to, at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg, what was on it, and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servants pass on before you. And when he passed on, stop here for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. This is the word of God. Father, help us. We just ask that you'd apply this word to our lives. Show us Jesus the King through it. And would you be praised to apply it to our lives? Convict us, confront us, comfort us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right. Sorry about that. If you're not in this room, it's cutting in and out, so we'll trade mics. First impressions are pretty important, aren't they? I mean, when you, when you have a first impression of someone, it's kind of a gut feeling. Let's think about first impressions. If, if, if you have a, a super good first impression of someone, that goes a long way to build trust, doesn't it? But what happens if you have too good of a first impression of someone? Uh, look out. Skepticism, right? Red flags, warning lights. A bad first impression, it can be compensated for, but it's going to take some time. Trust has to be built. But ultimately, a first impression is just that. It's an impression. It's a gut feeling. And what I want us to do this morning is think about what we just read and consider, like, what is our first impression as readers of God's Word when we meet this man named Saul? Because this is our first impression. We're going to have three chapters really in a row that are kind of introducing us to the man the people asked for. We know it's a transition in the book because even the language, the way it starts, we read that there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Well, that sounds very eerie, eerily similar to the very beginning of the book. The beginning of the book says there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim whose name was El- Elkanah. That's how the book starts. We have the similar introduction here. And this is a third or fourth time now we see a parent introduced before we meet the critical player in the story, which is one of their sons. And so you have Elkanah and Hannah, and we're introduced to their son, Samuel. We meet Eli, and we're introduced to his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Then we have a brief mention of Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah. And now we meet a man named Kish. Kish is wealthy. Kish is from an insignificant tribe called Benjamin. But Kish had this enormous, and as I've already said, the Bible kind of like, hey, he's, he's like this huge, handsome, hardworking farm boy. He's like everything you could imagine in East Tennessee, right? And, and so we read that he's a handsome young man. The actual Hebrew for young man can mean chosen one. So you actually have this handsome, chosen one. We've just come out of chapter 8 where there's this warning that the people are going to have Samuel appoint for them the king they ask for, and voila, a handsome young man, a handsome chosen man. This has to be the guy, right? Literally, when we read that it says there's not a person in Israel more handsome than he, another translation, there's not a person in Israel more choice than he, or better than he. He's head and shoulders taller, As AJ and I were talking this week, when you see a description of an abnormally large Israelite, that's rare. It's usually the enemies of God's people that are described as large, right? So there's some things in this first impression we need to pay attention to. But the thing that does stand out to me the most is Saul seems to be a rather ordinary young man who's working on his father's farm. And on this particular day, he's got an ordinary, well, maybe abnormal, but it's, a, it's an ordinary task that dad would appoint for him. The donkeys are gone. Grab a servant, go find them. Pack a lunch and return when you have completed your task. First impression, we see that this hunt lasts for multiple days. It wasn't fruitful. They went far from home. And we see Saul say to his servant, we should probably go home, lest father Be anxious. Now let's let that be a first impression. Doesn't that stand out as different than the sons of Eli? I mean, at least you got to give Saul some credit. He's concerned for his father's wherewithal. But there's another thing we might want to be aware of. 
Chapter 8 basically says this is going to be a, one who's going to reject the righteous way. And we could almost say that Saul wants to turn back before the task is completed also, doesn't he? He might begin to show us a little bit of a sign that he'll cut a corner. And so we see this unique first impression. Now, as he wants to turn back, his servant says, well, hold on a second. There's this man of God in the city where we happen to be. He's a prophet. Whatever he says comes true. Maybe we should go see him. Observation. Saul doesn't appear to know who Samuel is. If we go back to chapter 3, verse 20, Samuel was established as a prophet and all of Israel knew who he was. That's chapter 3, verse 20. And now you have this thought that Saul's not even aware we're in the city of the man of God. But Saul's servant knows. So the servant says, let's go see this man. But Saul's pretty committed to kind of resigning the task. And he says, well, hold on. We've got nothing to give him. Our bread is gone. First impression. That's not all bad. We can't go ask for something for nothing. That's a good boy, right? He wants to not just take from the seer. Seers would be paid. They'd be funded for their message. And the servant says, well, hold on. I've got this piece of silver. Come on, let's go. First impression observation. Saul is the follower in this story. It's fascinating. It doesn't come to us at first glance, but the servant stands out as the leader who says, let's finish the task, let's find the prophet, and let's fund the message. As I talk to children in my house and as we think through just living in this world, sometimes a telltale sign of someone not having the maturity you thought they would have is that in a, in a situation where they can be a leader, they, they end up a follower. And it doesn't look like much at first, but doubting who they are, doubting what God's designed for them, turns into just one step in a direction where they needed to have the strength to lead and to know what God was say, had said and what was actually happening. And we see Saul be the follower here. Next thing happens, you have in verse 11... There's these young women going out to the well to draw water. If you are a student of the Bible, whenever you see young women going out to draw water, usually there's something critical going on, right? In biblical history, think with me of Isaac. He met Rebekah at the well. Think with me of Jacob, who met Rachel at the well. Think with me in Exodus 2 of Moses. And the, 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 the Pharaoh's daughter and her, her ladies were out at the water. Not a well, but it was still water. And we have a similar scene here. Just there's women, young women going out to draw water. And so they ask him, is the seer here? Is he in this town? And they say, yes, he's ahead of you. In fact, he's come to the city because the people have a sacrifice. But you better hurry because the people are already waiting on him. Where's the seer going? I think it's fascinating. It's probably the very same altar that Samuel built in chapter 7, verse 17. When he went back to his hometown of Ramah, he built an altar and he worshiped the Lord there. And now we see that the, the prophet is going up to the high place and we don't have his name until verse 14, but yes, indeed, this is Samuel. Now, if you're the reader and if you've been tracking with our series and we go through kind of the conflict, climax, resolution, plot line of a story, we should be feeling conflict right about verse 14. Because the people had asked for a king. God told Samuel to give the people what they asked for. And do you remember what Samuel's gut reaction was when the people asked for a king? He thought it was evil. He was disappointed. He didn't like this thought. And now we see that Samuel is colliding with this giant handsome man whose name happens to be asked for. 
But Samuel's not surprised by this because we read in the middle of our passage that the day before, God had told Samuel that he was going to meet the very one the people had asked for. And he was to anoint this man. He was told, Samuel, you're going to know exactly who the man is because it's going to happen about this time tomorrow. The son's going to be in the exact same location. Samuel's not surprised. In fact, we need to wonder if this whole sacrifice, this whole meal at the high place with 30 people invited, their special guests, hasn't been set in motion by Samuel in advance because he knew what was going to happen. We read in verse 23, he'd already selected the portion of food. He'd already had someone set the seat of honor. Samuel is not surprised here. So the second point in your outline is the climax is really a flashback in the middle of the chapter. It's not needed for the the flow of the story, but it's needed for the understanding of the story. And what we're given in 15 to 17 is the calling of Saul. And we need to understand it. As we go into this, I want you to understand something that is blatantly clear. This is not a coincidence that Samuel runs into the giant farm boy. Not a coincidence at all. God is doing all of this. And so you might find on the back side of your bulletin, I, I printed the fifth part of the fifth chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What is God's providence? Right? Maybe you're familiar with that term. God is sovereign over everything, and He works things out according to His providence. Providence is, is God. The great creator upholding, directing, disposing of, and governing all creatures, actions, and things for from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence, by his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his will to the praise of his glory. God is doing something here through this young man looking for his father's donkeys. As one commentator put it, Providence is that wonderful, strange, mysterious, unguessable way the Lord has of ruling His world, of sustaining His people, and doing it frequently over, under, around, through, or in spite of the most common stuff of our lives, even the bias of our wills. God's at work here. That's what the chapter won't let us get away from. And and God tells Samuel what's about to happen, and so Samuel knows. And so we have a theological principle here on display for us in our life. We can only understand exactly what God's doing if God has spoken and revealed exactly what God's doing. And that happens to Samuel the prophet. As another commentator says, no one can deduce God's purpose by merely observing events, whether they're historical or contemporary. Only when God speaks and reveals His purpose, as He did on that day to Samuel, can any human know the precise purpose of God. So maybe you've heard me say this before. If we say to someone else who's going through a hard time, you know what, I think I know what God's doing here. Here's what He's doing in your life. We're running the risk of taking the Lord's name in vain and ascribing to Him something we can't know. But if God has revealed in His Word what He's doing... For example, I will give you my spirit so that you can believe in my way of rescue. So when someone believes in his way of rescue in Jesus, what can we already know? God gave me his Holy Spirit that I can believe that. And if I have his spirit, then he's, he's a God who does a work of renewal. And that renewal is day by day from one degree of glory to another. So if God's word says, hey, Christian, even on hard days and hard weeks, you need to know he's renewing you by his Holy Spirit. If you're his own, can you believe that? Yes, because he said that that's how he works. But very rarely are we given what Samuel had here, which is the specific thing that was going to happen the next day. 
He knew exactly what it was. Because God told him what his providence was going to be before it unfolded. And here's what God said. When you meet this man, I want you to anoint him. Anoint him to be someone to do something. So who's he supposed to be? Anoint him to be my prince. Notice it doesn't say to be a prince. My prince over my people. This man is to be mine for my purpose. Now, we know that the people have asked for a king, so we should be surprised by this word prince. In Hebrew, it's not just a regal term. It can mean more generically like just a leader. But it's very important that it's not the word king. So what is this prince supposed to do? My prince is supposed to save my people from the hand of my enemies. To save my people from those whose gods are headless and handless. Right? To save my people from those who who my hand as God has been heavy against them. In other words, this prince is supposed to do nothing different because God's going to keep being the acting agent who has his hand against his enemies while his hand holds his people. In a way, nothing's changed. But then as Samuel looked up and saw Saul coming his way, we're told that the prince is supposed to do something else. God says, there he is. Here's the one I told you about. He it is who shall restrain my people. So he's supposed to save my people and restrain my people. By the way, in verse 16 and 17, four times my people is referenced. We're going to see in the next chapter, God calls his people his heritage. God is not giving up ownership of his people. Right? So my prince to save my people, but also to restrain my people. What in the world could this mean? To restrain is to hold back. What is the prince supposed to hold God's people back from? We need to think about what we know already in the story. He's supposed to restrain God's people from following the wayward want to have an earthly leader to make them like the nations, which was actually a rejection of God the king. That's what he was supposed to restrain God's people from. In some regards, restrain them from the desire that they have made plain. Restrain them from seeking to be like the nations. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might say, well, this sounds similar to Romans 13, where any geopolitical leader, any governor, any king that God puts over a people is supposed to be an agent and a terror, not of good conduct, but against bad. For as Romans 13.3 says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for your ruler does not bear the sword in vain. He's supposed to carry out God's wrath, God's vengeance, God's consequence on the wrongdoer. In other words, civil government exists in principle by God's design in every place where he appoints who he puts where he puts them to restrain and bring consequence against sin. But we have to understand here, Saul is not just a generic civil leader. Saul is supposed to be the prince over my people. Saul is as much a spiritual leader as he's to be a civil leader. He's to be God's prince over God's people, God's redeemed community, the ones he led out of Egypt in the Exodus. So in that regard, what do God's people have to be restrained from? Something pretty deep. Their tendency to idolatry, their sinful hearts that always want a substitute leader. Here's a question. How in the world is Saul supposed to do that if Samuel couldn't do that? How's the wor- how in the world is this supposed to happen when Samuel, fulfilling the role of prophet, of priest, and of judge, hasn't accomplished that? Well, let's understand this further. Maybe we should ask, why is Saul supposed to do this? And we have it right here in verse 16 at the end. 
Why was Saul supposed to save them and restrain them? God says, because I've seen my people and their cry has come to me. You know, understand this. We're not to the bad part of the book yet. Saul has a calling to participate in the plan of mercy that God has already instituted with Samuel. Samuel was to warn God's people. Saul is supposed to restrain God's people. Saul is actually being invited to join into God's merciful way of rescue to keep his people from pursuing what will destroy them. Now, now you may be thinking with me of chapter 8, verse 18, where God says, in that day when you get the king you chose, you're going to cry out to me and I'm not going to listen. Guess what? That hasn't happened just yet. God's people are not crying out to God yet saying, why did you let us have this one as our king? That moment's not here yet. The moment that is actually there is God's prince is supposed to join in God's design to extend God's rule to restrain God's people from what would destroy them. That's the calling on Saul's life. And Samuel knows it. And so we're, we're going to see how this all unfolds in the chapters to come, but let's look at the third point in your outline. After this moment of climax where Samuel knows who Saul is, everything else in this chapter is just resolution. It just all flows out of this. We see an absolutely confused man. He's completely, he's torqued. So just imagine Saul's surprise. Samuel says, I'm the seer. And today you're going to eat with me. In fact, you're God's guest. You're my guest at the high place where people are already waiting for us. And when you get there, my servants have been instructed to give you my portion, the very best portion. And then after that, you're going to come sleep at my house at a bed that's been prepared for you. And in the morning, I'm going to tell you the message God has for you. I just want you to think with me how, how perplexed Saul must be. So Saul says to him, Sir, why are you speaking to me this way? Like, I'm just a Benjaminite. I'm no one. In fact, we saw last week, the Benjaminites had a very tragic past. It's not just that I'm the smallest of the tribe. Like, we're the bad tribe. That the other tribes had to bring God's justice to almost destroy us and obliterate us because of the sins of my forefathers. Why are you talking to me this way? What's going on? I have a question for you. Do you think this is almost like a glimpse of Hannah's prayer coming true? If you've been with us, go back to chapter 2. Remember what she says in her prayer? The Lord raises up the needy. He makes them inherit a seat of honor. That's 1 Samuel 2 verse 8. Is that what is happening here? I think it's too early to tell because is Saul really God's honored prince? Is he going to live like he's the one that God's designed for him? He's going to believe God's calling we will wait and see. But one thing we see right here is this man's very ordinary life is blown up by God's word. And here's where I want to challenge you and have the word come to bear. What has happened in this whole book of 1 Samuel is when God's word shows up, his presence is there, his people are directed, and things change. That's also what God did at creation. Out of nothing, God created the earth. By his word. And now you have this man, Saul. He was looking for donkeys, and all of a sudden the word comes crashing into his life. The word of God reveals and reframes everything. The question is is he going to believe the design that God gives to him? And so I want you to pause with me for a second. We're going to lean into both an application as well as the, the Lord's Supper and the gospel here. Have you had the word of God reframe for you? 
any part of any day where your life is being kind of just what it is in the mundanity of it. You're just going along. And God's word just gives you an identity, a purpose, a calling. Has that happened in your life? Have you seen that in your life? Because that's what's actually happening in the life of Saul. And here's the troubling thing when we study God's word in Old Testament narrative is we're going to read about characters and we're going to see our life in their life. And when I read this, I think of, gosh, I almost kind of relate to Saul here. Just going about my business and how does God convert a heart by means of his word? He just crashes into their life. And I hope you have stories of that. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, in this Old Testament narrative, are we most like Saul? Who are we most like? Well, I would say to you, we're actually most like people that aren't mentioned in this chapter. We're still most like the people of Israel who say, God, I need, a, I need a leader to follow. And so here's where that starts to relate to us. We are most like the people who are hardly mentioned in this chapter, who when we get a good first impression of something that we want, something we think is going to be good, something that we demand it may be the very thing that sabotages us if we haven't trusted what God says about what we really need. And so think with me about this first impression and the people of Israel, right? They are so susceptible to any shiny objects. They've been susceptible to the idols of the Philistines around them and the sensuality because it's just this, as I said, I listened to myself preach the other day and I actually said it. I would be so susceptible in first century, not first century, in this time with the Philistines, right? Can you imagine your children being invited to go to worship with a Canaanite and being like, Mom and Dad, our church is very boring. Because of the sensuality and just the pagan sexual activity involved in the worship of their God. It was awful. It was awful. Just this shiny object and God's people are always so susceptible to what looks so good on first impression. And the same thing's going to happen with Saul, their king. This guy, he's a pretty good guy when we first meet him. He's actually okay. But understand that this chapter should make us feeling, leave us kind of feeling icky and sad. Very sad because it shows us our need for the gospel, how susceptible we can be to follow something that's going to actually be sabotaged by sin. Think with me about Saul being told by Samuel, is not all that is desired in Israel for you? What does that mean? Here's what the prophet's saying in verse 20. You're going to be the most blessed in Israel if you'll honor what God's designed for your life. Right? Because isn't that what God does? He brings blessing. He gives peace. He gives restoration. He makes promises to us. And Saul is being said, you know what your role is in that blessing? You're going to have the front row seat to see how God protects and preserves and blesses his people. But what does sin do to Saul? Sin sabotages this man. It's going to sabotage God's people's arrangement with God as their king. They're going, to, they're going to look for a substitute leader. Saul's going to be sabotaged himself. He'll start out as an okay guy. And here's what we're going to see over the weeks to come. He's going to go from receiving the promised blessing of God to not quite believing it. And then he's going to begin to doubt it. And then he's going to fear not being good enough or powerful enough for the position God's given to him. Then he's going to have a substitute design for his own role. He's going to change his job description. And then he's going to start to be a destructive leader. And he'll never be satisfied. It's never going to be enough. And before you know it, 
He's not going to fulfill his role as prince. He's not going to save the people. He's not going to restrain them from their sin. You know what he's going to restrain them from experiencing? God's good rule. He's going to prevent them from knowing God's good rule. And yet all that was desired in Israel could have been his. So here's the leaning into the Lord's Supper. There has to be something better than Saul. There has to be a leader of God's people who's nothing like Saul. There has to be a true king that would be more like what Hannah prayed for. And so, people, we just got to see one more Sunday. We keep seeing it each week. There's only one king for whom this description perfectly fits. To save God's people against their enemies and to restrain the power of what would sabotage them. There's only one king who could do that. There's only one for whom... All that is desirable is actually always been for. You know, when we meet Jesus in the New Testament, I want you to think with me about his temptation in the wilderness by Satan. Matthew chapter 4, the third of the temptations. Do you remember what Satan did? Led him up to a high mountaintop. And what did he say to him? All of this is yours. If you'll just worship me. And Jesus says, get away from me. But he's ultimately looking at Satan saying, you don't seem to understand. It's all mine. All that's ever been desired in all creation is mine. And more than that, I've already known what is desirable outside of that. I've known the mutual love and the glory with my Father forever. All that's desirable is mine. And when Jesus came... Was not his first impression somewhat perplexing? I mean, people were just blown away. Where did he get the authority to teach from? And now he's doing these miracles. And yet others went, this is blasphemy. No one can speak like this but God himself. Let's kill him. His first impression was just perplexing to the people. And yet Jesus knew what he came for, didn't he? Just like Saul knew what his job description was. Jesus' job description was to do two things. Save God's people from the enemy, which is sin and death and the wrath of God do them. And how did Jesus do that? By his cross. But what else does Jesus do? Does he not give us power that would restrain us from sin's oppression? How did he do that? By his resurrection and the giving us of his Holy Spirit. So I think, I've been thinking this week of Colossians chapter 1. It's a prayer. Let me read it to you from the Apostle Paul to God's people. He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to Jesus' glorious might for all endurance and all patience and all joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who's qualified you to know all the blessing that should be yours. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he's already in Jesus transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have the enemy defeated and we are not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for our salvation and our sanctification for all who believe. One of our 
struggles in teaching this book, and we've been talking about it each week with Bill and AJ and myself, is I love fast-forwarding in a book. I want to show you all the ways that, fall, that Saul falls apart. All of them. He starts out just following his servant, not being the leader God ordained him, would ordain him to be. And it's going to get so dark and gross. And so let me just say this. If you track with us one week or if you track with us every week, I think in the servant Saul, we see the sad descent of sin that starts with fear of man, which many of us struggle with. We just care what other people think of us. And it ends in the most ultimate rejection by God, well, rejection of God that leads to rejection by God. Whenever I get the privilege to talk to athletes and do devotions, I always go to 1 Samuel chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15. Try to show them what will happen if you live in a world where you're unsure of God's design and identity and calling and blessing and how fast and how awful the descent can be into addiction, into betrayal, into destruction. And so a little bit of forecasting. This is going to be a dark descent over the weeks to come. But in the gospel, Jesus descended into hell. And he finished the work of bearing the wrath of God. So as we take the Lord's Supper, you have to understand if sin has assaulted you, you will not be destroyed by it. If you turn to God in Christ who was destroyed by it instead of you. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, that is the good news and the hope of the gospel on which we stand. Let me pray with you as we now take the Lord's Supper. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to see in Jesus not just a shiny object that made a great first impression, but we see quite the opposite. We know that when you became flesh, Jesus, you were rejected. You were scorned. But you knew why you came and you knew what was yours. You knew the design of the Father and you accomplished it. And we ask now that as we take the Lord's Supper, that even as many of us have struggled with sin's descent and the cost of it, and we'll see it darkly in this book, would we be mindful of what has been spent by Jesus for us who bore your wrath, that we would be made righteous in your sight before we one day stand before you fully righteous, fully restored, not having had sin wreck us and sabotage it like the enemy wants. Nourish us now as we take this sacrament, would we taste and see that you're good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.